2: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we'll look at why an L.A. Times expose of the California man who claimed he invented hot Cheetos has caused a stir. First, though, the U.S. Supreme Court has set the stage for a major ruling on abortion by announcing this week that it will review a Mississippi law banning abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Legal observers say the move could mean Roe v. Wade, the case that established a constitutional right to an abortion is in jeopardy. We learn more, right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 decision, established a constitutional right to an abortion before a fetus is viable, or able to live outside the womb, which generally occurs at about 24 weeks. A Mississippi law would require that abortions occur by 15 weeks of pregnancy. As expected, the law was struck down by lower courts as inconsistent with Roe, but this week The U.S. Supreme Court said it would review the case. Joining me now is Mary Ziegler, professor of law at Florida State University College of Law and author of Abortion in America, a Legal History, Roe v. Wade to the Present. Professor Ziegler, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me. So the Mississippi
2: case is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. And at the center is the constitutionality of this 2018 Mississippi law that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Can you start by explaining what this law says
3: and the exceptions it allows? Sure. Yeah. So Mississippi's law bans all abortions at 15 weeks on the theory that fetal pain is possible at that point in pregnancy. And it's it's worth pausing to note that that in and of itself is very contested. Uh, Most research would suggest that fetal pain isn't possible until closer to somewhere between 28 and 30 weeks of pregnancy. Um, Most states that have fetal pain laws, in fact, say 20 weeks. So Mississippi is fairly unique in taking the position that 15 weeks is the line. But at any rate, that's when Mississippi bans abortions, with some exceptions for medical emergencies and what the state views as severe fetal abnormalities. I see. But... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, please go ahead. The the reason the law, of course, is a big deal is because in order to uphold it, the Supreme Court would either have to overrule the entirety of Roe v. Wade or overturn a key part of it, which is that there is a right to choose abortion before viability. Well,
2: help me understand the context for this. Who was behind its passage?
3: So uh Mississippi has um groups uh, uh, anti-abortion groups that are affiliated with national uh anti-abortion groups. Generally speaking, I think it's it's good to think of the anti-abortion movement very much as being a national um organization with a nerve center in DC. Most laws that you see were first thought of by Um, national anti-abortion groups based in D.C. Mississippi's law is a little bit different because it it was unique in being a 15-week ban. So this was largely the work of of state anti-abortion leaders um, who wanted, I think, to sort of try a different line, if you will, throw different kinds of gestational limits at the wall and see what stuck. Uh, And I think for that reason, that it was sort of a case some commentators were sleeping on, in a way, because it was not part of a kind of more comprehensive strategy. It was not the kind of law you saw in the books in lots of states, Um, even though, like, as I mentioned, fetal pain laws are not uncommon. uh, This particular 15-week style of law is.
2: Would you say that it was still designed then as a vehicle to basically get the U.S. Supreme Court to look at Roe?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think Almost every abortion law that you see being passed in the states today is a vehicle to challenge Roe, and this law was no different. I think another way of thinking about it is that these laws are often designed to give the Supreme Court a range of options, right? So either to overturn Roe immediately or to kind of tee up a subsequent case doing so. And I think Mississippi's law fits that mold pretty well.
2: And just remind us who is challenging it.
3: Uh, So um, the Jackson Women's Health Clinic, which is um, the only abortion provider in the state of Mississippi, the only remaining abortion provider, uh, is the the group challenging the law.
2: And as I mentioned earlier in the introduction, that basically the lower courts upheld or the challenge, I guess, essentially, right? They Mm -hmm. were basically saying that, yes, there is no way that this is something that does not go against what has been established by Roe v. Wade.
3: Absolutely. And it's also worth emphasizing that the lower courts that reached that decision are some of the most conservative in the United States. So the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is one of the most um, sort of famously conservative appellate courts, struck this law down. Um, and even a, a Trump nominee on that court said that any kind of good faith reading of the court's precedents would find these this law to be unconstitutional. So That's one of the reasons why it's such a big deal that the court agreed to take this case, because, of course, it's not lost on the justices that this law conflicts with precedents like Roe v. Wade. I think that's the point.
2: Right. So did this surprise you, though, this timing of them saying, yes, we will go ahead and take this case that there's clearly no split on in the lower courts?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I, I was uh, I think especially because it's uh, for listeners who haven't been following this closely, the court has been sitting on this case since September of 2020 without taking any action on it. And so I think some people myself included had begun to wonder if the court was not going to take the case and if that fact had angered you know the court's conservative members, perhaps Clarence Thomas was writing some sort of fiery dissent complaining about the court's uh, shirking its responsibility to hear this issue. But I I was surprised that they took the case um, at all. Uh, And I think certainly by the fact that they took the most controversial question and nothing else to resolve also was quite stunning to me.
2: And that question being to rule on whether all bans on pre-viability abortions are unconstitutional.
3: Exactly. And I mean, as I mentioned, there's just no way you can answer that question in Mississippi's favor without significantly overhauling abortion jurisprudence.
2: So there I mean absolutely none. Like you could not in some way uphold Mississippi's law and keep Roe intact in any way. They're just fundamentally inconsistent, you're saying?
3: Well you could you could you could try, right? <laughs> so the only way the court could do that is essentially to redefine what it means by Roe. And there actually is some some past examples of this. So in 1992, we had a similar conservative supermajority. Uh, the court essentially um, decided to keep what it called the essential holding of Roe, which had two components, viability as the limit, and the idea of a right to choose abortion. Right. So it's conceivable that the court could say, you know, viability is unworkable, it changes with technology, it doesn't make moral or ethical sense, it's no longer essential, but we're gonna keep the other thing, the idea of a right to choose abortion. Of course, practically then the question would become if, if viability isn't the line, then what is? Yes. And, you know, is there is there any line, right? Or are bans at fertilization now possible?
2: Mary Ziegler is professor of law at Florida State University College of Law. She specializes in the legal history of reproduction, the family, sexuality, and the Constitution. And we're talking about the Supreme Court's decision this week to review a Mississippi abortion law and what that could mean for Roe v. Wade. your you, listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you'd like. Are you worried about the future of Roe? Have you had an abortion or have had difficulty accessing one? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Okay, so now all eyes are on the Supreme Court. We have this newly constituted 6 3 conservative majority. Can you? I know it's impossible to predict how this will go, but can you just talk about the changes on the court and why abortion rights proponents are so nervous? I I mean, we do talk about, of course, the threat to Roe, but just generally the likelihood, I think, is what's and how this has played out in terms of their decision to take it is what's been a little bit stunning, as you said.
3: Yeah. Well, so um, the the court's change cha- the court changed significantly during Donald Trump's four years in office. Uh, he nominated three new justices. So uh, Neil Gorsuch probably marked the least significant change because he replaced Antonin Scalia, who was uh, one of the most outspoken critics of the Roe decision. So even if Gorsuch is as dismissive of Roe as Scalia was, that you really be it sort of will be a one for one exchange. Um, of course. Probably the most significant change when it came to abortion in the court was the retirement of Anthony Kennedy in 2018 and the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh that same year. Of course, Kavanaugh promised Susan Collins that he would respect precedent and at least in Collins telling would not reverse Roe. But uh, since being on the court, Kavanaugh has has pretty consistently voted that abortion regulations are constitutional. um, And there's no reason to think that that will change even if Uh, the kinds of regulation he's looking at become more extreme. And then, of course, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away in 2020, uh, she was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. We, We don't have a particularly good read on what Coney Barrett will do in the court, simply because she hasn't really ever written an entire opinion on abortion. But she was certainly selected in part because she personally is profoundly opposed to abortion. Um, has written things in indicating that she doesn't think that there's a right to abortion and so on. So obviously we don't have a paper trail when it comes to Amy Coney Barrett, the Supreme Court justice, but Amy Coney Barrett, you know, the human being, the individual certainly doesn't think that Roe was rightly decided. I think the real question mark going forward is is not whether the court has a conservative majority, but what kind of conservative majority the court has. Mm. We've seen John Roberts, for example, who I think certainly is no proponent of abortion rights, probably doesn't believe the the Constitution recognizes a right to abortion, still be reluctant to move too quickly in reversing Roe for fear of damaging the court's reputation. Yes. On the other extreme, we've seen Clarence Thomas sort of up on the ramparts, really taking any opportunity he can to call for the overruling of Roe. And so the question in Dobbs is going to be where, you know, the three Trump nominees fall along that. And we have reason to believe because the court took this case that they may find themselves a little closer to Thomas than to Roberts.
2: Yes, because there was this idea that that the court would likely tinker around the edges of Roe and not do something so dramatic, as you're saying, in part because of, of John Roberts' concerns as well. But by taking this case, that has really thrown that into question.
3: Absolutely, right. And I think um, certainly that doesn't necessarily mean the court will say Roe is overturned in one fell swoop. But if the court is willing to take on this kind of bold action this quickly, it's sort of hard to see what would be stopping them from overturning Roe if not this year, then, or not when it wouldn't be this year, if not in 2022, then in 2023 or 2024.
2: We're talking about the Supreme Court's decision this week to review a Mississippi abortion law. We're talking about what that could mean for Roe v. Wade. And your listeners, are invited to weigh in. If you have questions, concerns, 866-733-6786 is the number. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And you can always email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. More with Mary Ziegler, a professor of law at Florida State University College of Law. After the break, stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
0: You're listening to
2: Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Yesterday, Texas became the latest state to enact a so-called heartbeat bill, which bans abortions as early as six weeks of pregnancy, with no exceptions for cases of rape or incest. Under Roe v. Wade, the Texas law has little chance of survival. But after the Supreme Court this week agreed to review a Mississippi abortion law, many legal observers think Roe is in jeopardy. And we're talking with law professor Mary Ziegler about this, and you our listeners, what are your questions, concerns about the future? Of Roe. Have you yourself had an abortion or ever had difficulty accessing one? And curious about what your reaction is to what I just said about Texas's law. 866 733 6786. Again, 866 733 6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. So, Mary Ziegler, I do want to ask you about this Texas law. So, basically, it's one of actually a very large number of highly restrictive bills that have become law in some. Southern and Midwestern states. And of course, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law a so-called heartbeat bill yesterday that bans abortions when a heartbeat is detected around six weeks and also allows private citizens to sue doctors or anyone who, quote, aids or abets an abortion, contains no exceptions for pregnancies that result from cases of rape or incest. Can you talk about what happens to something like this if Roe is not in place?
3: Well, it it goes into effect and Texas is hoping that its law could actually be enforceable, even if Roe is in place, because Texas is hoping that uh, by kind of outsourcing the enforcement of this law to really basically anyone in Texas who wants to sue, Uh, that the the state won't be in the crosshairs of um, abortion providers and patients who are arguing that the law is unconstitutional. So Texas is hoping that it it won't really need to wait until after Roe is gone to enforce this law. And probably more importantly, to avoid paying really hefty legal fees (laughs) if the the state is wrong about the court uh, upholding a heartbeat bill. But I think um, if Roe were gone, states most likely could do whatever they wanted when it came to abortion. Uh, It's conceivable, though not likely, that the Supreme Court would eventually recognize uh, fetal personhood under the Constitution. That's certainly what anti-abortion lawyers are ultimately gunning for, And if they did that, then abortion would be illegal in in California as well as in Alabama. But that's not likely to be the outcome soon. The likely outcome in the near term will be the court saying simply that there is no constitutional right to abortion, which means states are free to do whatever they want.
2: And in California, for example, we have a state legislature that would be unlikely to limit access to abortion, at least in its current form. Um, But it sounds like that would be a could that potentially be just a harder thing to justify as time goes on? I mean, should people here feel totally safe?
3: I, no, I mean, not depending on who's on the Supreme Court, right? Because if the Supreme Court fine recognizes, uh, you know, fetal personhood or a right to life, then that wouldn't allow states the freedom to do what they want anymore. I don't think there are five votes on the Supreme Court for that right now, but there's no saying in the future that that won't be the case. I think in California, the, the concern would be more um, something that we, we often see, which is that the people who are often the most vulnerable, uh, whether uh, you know, to things like abortion bans are often you know, low income people of color living in the South and the Midwest, who of course will be immediately affected if Roe is gone. Um, And that wouldn't change, of course, for people in California, but that could have consequences that would be significant, hopefully, to anyone who's paying attention.
2: Yes. Well, let me go to some calls, and I'll start with Camila in Sebastopol. Hi, Camila.
4: Hi there.
2: Hi. What's Uh, on your mind?
4: um, Well, I wanted people to know what happens when a, a legal abortion is not available. So in 1969, you couldn't get an abortion in California, where I live, and um, unless there was a psychological evaluation or whatever, and it was too late. I was four months pregnant because I was terrified of my parents, and um, when they discovered it, they uh, flew me down to Mexico with my mother, to Mexico City, where I had a backroom abortion. Mm -hmm. It wasn't particularly clean. It certainly wasn't a nice place to be. Um, They sedated me, but I woke up in the middle of it, hearing my mother screaming. And I don't know why, because she never would tell me what she saw and what happened. But when I left there, I hemorrhaged massively came home with a terrible infection and was never able to have children after that.
2: Camila, thank you for sharing that story. I'm very sorry that that happened to you. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate the courage you have to share it. Mary Ziegler, Camila's story is reminding me of a couple of things. One is that What a lot of people are talking about is the importance of sharing the stories about, um, especially those who are abortion abortion rights proponents, about the importance of sharing your stories and that the fact that people are often not doing that is part of the problem. So I appreciate Camilla's point. But then there's also, of course, what she's more broadly talking about, which is the consequences of when they are not legally available.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the questions that will be um, interesting going forward is whether or not um, things are the same as they were before Roe. And I think there's reasons for pessimism and reasons for optimism on that front. The reasons for optimism basically boil down to um, improvements in in medical care, but also to the availability of abortion medication. So we can see how things are working in places like Ecuador or Poland where abortion already is illegal. Um, It's very hard for states to track and stop the mailing of of medication abortion, which can be bought on the internet. And there are more startups recognizing, I think that there'll be more of a need for this that are are forming now to make medication abortion available. That doesn't mean that you can't have horror stories because of course, people who have less, um, less education, less access to information may not take uh, medication abortion as prescribed or as recommended um, may suffer complications and may not go to a hospital because they're afraid of legal consequences. Um, I think, on the negative side, in terms of what's changed, for the most part, in the pre-row years, uh, women and pregnant people who had abortions were not the ones who were criminally punished. It was usually uh, abortion providers. And in in some instances, people who helped other people find abortion providers. It's sort of hard for me to see logistically how states could stick to that model, even though that's what they're saying, if we're looking at a world where medication abortion is available. Because of course, California is not going to want to extradite the doctor prescribing the medication abortion to a patient in Alabama. But the, the patient who lives in Alabama will be there for the taking if the state chooses to prosecute. So I think long term, we'd be looking more likely at people um, seeking abortions, potentially being susceptible to criminal prosecutions and prison time for choosing to do that.
2: Let me go to Anne and Martinez. Hi, Anne.
5: Hello. Hello. I'm um, going to be 81 this year, and in the early 60s, I helped two women pay for their trips to the Caribbean to have abortions, Uh, not because I'm very fond of abortions. I don't think I would have ever had one in my own life, but I believe that it's the right of a woman to do that. If I need to, I will be out uh, with my two canes, uh, picketing to make sure that this doesn't happen to women in this day and age. The other thing I want to say is that if a man can't take care of the children that he has fathered, I believe that there should be a law that says that the state must do it.
2: Well, and thanks for sharing. you giving us that historical context and making us realize just um, how long the fight has also been going on as well. Let me go next to caller Gwen in San Francisco. Hi, Gwen. Thanks for joining us as well. Hi. Hi, go right ahead.
6: Um, I had an I'm in my seventies and I had an abortion the very first time I did it. And I just went to Planned Parenthood. They did a referral. This was in California. I think the procedure was performed at San Leandro's hospital. The nurse was nice. It was it was easily done, and I wasn't careless. Before I even started having sex, I was on the pill, but it just didn't agree with me. And they don't have—they didn't have back then all the good birth control that they do now. And speaking of birth control, you know what's going to happen if they. Um, overturn Roe versus Wade, they're going to go after our birth control because these people are anti-sex, period. And one last thing, did you guys know, you can get an abortion in Italy. You can also get one legally and safe in Mexico. So why is America still, you know, hung up on, you know, abortion and women's rights
2: to choose? Well, Gwen, thanks for, for sharing your perspective Mary Ziegler, I think what we're hearing, I mean, Gwen asks why is America, but I think in many ways what this fight kind of overshadows is the fact that, at least according to Pew, for example, a clear majority of Americans do say that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Uh, And so it's interesting when you think about that and then you think about the possibility that six justices could usher in this era where abortion is illegal and and could happen in at least, gosh, I mean, are we at the point now, roughly half
3: of U.S. states? Yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I think that's, it's striking. And one of the, the ironies, of course, is the Supreme, Supreme Court sort of stumbled into a situation that Americans were more okay with, because Americans, uh, to the extent they're conflicted about abortion, seem to like restrictions on later abortions. But a right to abortion and access early in pregnancy, which is sort of what we've ended up with, although it's hard to generalize from state to state. But I think one thing that probably caused the court to pause so long before taking this case is that it would probably be tremendously unpopular to overturn Roe, particularly because that would usher in, you know, full criminal bans, which are very unpopular and that could it would be doing that i think it's worth noting in an election year months before the november 2022 election if this were the case or potentially not long before the 2024 presidential election if the court takes a few cases to reach that outcome and so i think it it's striking it tells us that the supreme court in the united states has more power than we might like it to it tells us that Supreme Court justices can sit on the court well after the elections that theoretically suggested support for their positions, um, and and I think it, it also we shouldn't forget though that the court is not going to have the final word on this. If there is a backlash, there will be lots of conversations about changing the court, about the laws in the states. Like the the court, of course, the the court in Roe v. Wade thought it had had the last word, right? And we, here we are, almost fifty years later, still talking about this. So. While the court has more power than many of us may like, the court also doesn't have the ability to single handedly end this fight one way or another.
2: Yes. And you bringing up the election reminds me that I should tell listeners this is a case that they will hear in the next term starting in October. And yes, that a decision is likely around the early summer of 2022, a midterm Election year. We're talking with Mary Ziegler. She specializes in the legal history of reproduction, the family, sexuality, and the Constitution as a professor of law at Florida State University College of Law, also author of Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the Present. We're talking about the Supreme Court's decision this week to review a Mississippi abortion law and what that could mean for Roe v. Wade, and also about a Texas law uh, that was signed yesterday that uh, would ban abortions when a heartbeat is detected around six weeks. Let me go to Buck next in San Francisco. Hi,
0: Buck. Join us. Hi. Uh, Thanks a lot for this show. Um, I think that if they they do this, um, they're going to see a movement in this country that will dwarf all previous movements. Um, I think it's at core... These are the same people that want to outlaw sex education in schools. I think at core it's an attack on women's sexuality. And I predict their next move will be try to pass legislation to outlaw the clitoris.
2: Whoa. Well, uh, Buck, in terms of a movement, in terms of sort of related to the election timing that we're talking about, that was sort of one thing that uh, it sounded like they were wary of. Let me go to Cindy in, on the peninsula. Hi, Cindy. Hi. <laughs> um,
5: <laughs> didn't expect it next. Sorry. Um, I like your program. I just wanted to add that um, having studied human physiology at Cal, having um, a professor there bring up um, different forms of contraception and also having our lecture hall of 400 people and half of them or more being women, um, we all sort of got upset by the fact that he never brought up anything about male contraception. That <laughs> was more than just a, a rubber. And so one day we came in, all of us with balloons, and the men too, and we all popped the balloons at the same time, <laughs> just to shock the professor into realizing that something has to be done and um, it shouldn't all be up to women to be, um, mm. you know, watching <laughs> what's going on. And I, um, I also am a scientist as a result of that. I worked in a fertility lab for a little while. And of course, when women are fertilized, they have multiple embryos implanted and they have to decide if they want to keep or not. And so, of course, they have, they generally keep one if possible rather than two or multiple because it makes life more expensive and difficult. And, um, so, you know, at that point, embryos are thrown aside. Um, I've worked with human cell lines. Every cell is is important. Every cell has DNA. (laughs) Every cell has, I mean, it's just the whole argument of treating a bundle of cells at early stage as something that is human. Yes, it has um, potential, but it's not quite there yet. Um, And the fact that, I guess I'm justifying the fact that I, in my um, immature days, had an abortion. It was with the wrong relationship. Um, I just assumed as a young woman in the 80s, oh, you know, I'm a free woman. I am I have a huge, huge future in front of me. Why should something hold me back? I'm going to go in for this and just took it for granted that I could have an abortion. And, of course, later I realized, what have I done? <laughs> And I, I felt guilty about it, um, but at the same time, justified it because it was just the very, very beginning stage. And um, and then I think anti-abortion people have to think about the consequence of all these women who are way too young, having children, who really can't afford nor able handle them, uh, maybe mistreating them because they, they're too immature to handle a child at that age, um, and and all these poor children in foster care who then have no place to go. And, and the whole administration mm. having to handle this cost of foster children. Yeah. And how would it feel to be a foster child? Um, no, you weren't wanted. So, you know, they just have to go through all the steps of um, what they really care about and what is precious.
2: Well, Cindy, thank you for for bringing all that in. And Mary Ziegler, we just have a minute or so left. But I guess ultimately, as we hear these comments, and and I do so appreciate the people who have called in today with their thoughts and comments and stories as well. I mean, what do you feel like is fundamentally at issue here when we're seeing this, uh, basically this debate, this fight take place across our country and in our courts?
3: Well- it's always about been about more than the Supreme Court, as lot, a as lot of the, the listeners who've called in have suggested, this is about people's lives. And from even a more abstract standpoint, this is about very different visions of what the good life looks like, what equality means, what dignity means, you know, when life begins. And all of those issues are things that the Supreme Court can't resolve. And so at a moment, I think if you're a supporter of abortion rights that you might find scary, it's a good thing to remember that the Supreme Court won't ever put an end to that and can't, right? So th- this case, Dobbs, will be a point on a much longer road. Well, Professor
2: Ziegler, we really appreciate you coming on today.
3: It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Mary Ziegler, Professor of Law at Florida State University College of Law. Thank you to our listeners for their questions and comments. Thank you to Susan Britton, our producer, for producing today's segment. Stay with us for more Forum. I'm Mina Kim.